Hello! Thank you very much for tuning into this Bible study. My name is Dave, and this is a Bible study going through the book of Romans, and we are now on Romans 5. For those who have been following on uh, a weekly basis, there's been a gap in time. The last video I did was the very, very first Wednesday of December, and I took the month of December off, uh, and then I had planned on picking the videos back up um, in January, but unfortunately I got COVID last week, and uh, so... I took the week off and now I still have a little bit of lingering and my quarantine technically ends uh, today and so just to play it safe I am not in the studio. Uh, welcome to my home. This is my home office and Lily is uh, my one of our two cats that is so excited that we're filming in the home office that she has decided that uh, she is not going to take the hint uh, but for you cat owners out there you know how cats are. If you don't want them to be in one spot that's exactly where they're going to be. Uh, Kinsey is here as usual for those people who are watching uh, um, on a weekly basis. Kinsey loves to be um, right with me wherever I am at. Uh, Lexi is downstairs uh, sound asleep. So this week we are covering Romans chapter 5. I am so excited about this. Uh, Romans 5 is a phenomenal passage in the Bible. Uh, it's not too long, 21 verses, uh, and this shouldn't be that long of a study. We're going to talk about um, two aspects. Uh, we're going to break uh, uh, Romans up into two chunks. Um, we're going to cover Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, and then we're going to uh, cover the second half, which is chapters uh, uh, or, or verses um, 12 through 21. Uh, in the second half. So before we dig into this, why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you that we can be here wherever we're at studying your word. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me and Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds and you'll teach us something new. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Lily, I, I really got to do this. So I'm going to toss you over here. There you go. That's her bed. We'll see how quickly she comes uh, running back. Okay, so up until this point in the book of Romans, up until this point, Paul's focus has been on the power of the gospel to help those trapped in sin uh, into a right relationship with God. And that the specific verse that covers that, which we've talked about before, hi Lily, the specific verse that we've talked about that, that is basically the, the main verse of the entire book of Romans is Romans 1.16. And that is, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That is the essential verse of the entire book. It's the whole point Paul is trying to make is it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So up until this point, uh, chapters 1 through 4 have been focusing on um, the fact that we're trapped in sin, all have fallen short, uh, all are sinful, uh, no one is, is righteous, not even one. Paul goes over that and he's hit that uh, nail on the head multiple times and that the power, it's the power of the gospel that uh, brings us back into a right relationship. Well now we're going to transition for chapters 5 through 8 in which we're going to focus on um, two aspects, two things that we're going to focus on. Um, first, it's a term called assurance. Theologians call it assurance. And the idea of this is it's the, the certainty we can have. I'm sorry, Kat, you gotta go. Uh, I'm sorry, tangent, distraction. Okay, so there's the two sides of it for chapters five through eight. The first one is what uh, theologians call assurance. 
And the idea of this is that it's the certainty we can have of our justification through Christ that will lead to a final salvation. Okay, so let me say that again. It's the certainty we can have that our justification through Christ will lead to salvation. And the second half, um, we're going to cover um, the, the continuing struggle that we now face as Christians um, against sin and the law. And Lily is up here. Her tail is going to go right in front of the lens here in a second. <laughs> See, the do there's, there's the tail. Isn't that great? <laughs> okay, I just tossed the cat out and hopefully uh, she won't be coming back up the stairs. She's rather annoyed at me now. Um, man, I love my animals, but I am more of a dog person than a cat person. Um, okay, so continuing. I'm going to say it again. Chapters 5 through 8, we now go into this new section of the letter that Paul is writing to the Roman church. And he's basically going to bookend it. He's going to open chapter 5 and close chapter 8, hitting on this idea of the assurance. And what we're going to see uh, today in chapter 5, 1 through 11, it, he's going to make that point of the assurance that we have. Then he's going to back it up in verses 12 through 21 um, of chapter 5, in which we compare um, Christ to Adam. Adam and Christ, uh, Christ is often called, or he has been referred to as the second Adam. And I'm going to talk about that. So let's dig into this. Um, so why don't you open your Bibles. We're doing uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll come back and we'll dissect it. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in the sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath and through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there's a few different things I want to hit on. <clears throat> we talked about last week and he picks up right here. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what did we talk about last week? I know it was weeks ago, but what did we talk about? We looked at Father Abraham. We looked at Abraham at, and how the Bible specifically says that his faith was counted unto him as righteousness. 
not by works. Right? So this is uh, something that we've been talking about, and this is one of the things that I want you to understand, and we're going to hit on this over and over again. Historically, culturally speaking, Paul is writing to the Roman church, uh, and I think it's 35, 36 AD, roughly is when he's writing this. Uh, i got to look that up now and make sure that's accurate. Way off, 57 AD. I knew that was wrong. I knew that was wrong. As soon as I said that, I was like, ah, it's not right. So 57 AD is roughly when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. But the important thing that I want to hit on is, is that you need to try to put yourself in the culture and the historical time frame. So we've talked about this before, but there is existing throughout the entire Mediterranean. Um, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. And it, as we've talked about when we went through Acts, Paul and the apostles would go into the synagogue first and speak first to the Jews. Why? Because the message of salvation is for the Jews. Christianity is not uh, a, a fixing of Judaism or a new version of Judaism. It is the completion of it. It is the next step. And so the apostles went first to the Jews. And then those Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they're called Messianic Jews, there was this tension that existed. Do we need to still follow the law or do we not? And this is that argument of faith, uh, simply uh, having salvation by faith, receiving salvation by faith, or is it by works? Is it by following the law? Is it by doing things? So that's why Paul keeps coming back to this. And again, he's going to hit on it uh, in chapter 7. We're going to come back to the law and being trapped in the law. It's not something that that today really is as... as uh, it doesn't re resonate as much with us today. And the reason being is, is because we're not under the law. I would make the argument that we're even so far down the side of grace that we've lost this reverence and this holy fear of God. So uh, I'm sorry for that tangent, but the point that I wanted to make at is, is that all of chapter 4, we looked at Abraham as the father of the Jews and the fact that the righteousness that he received as credited to him by God was because of his faith. So now, as we're coming into this, that's the first line in, in, in 5.1, is therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he hits on hope. He says the word hope several times here. Right? He says, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in the sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame. What is the hope that we have in Christians? Christians talk about that all the time. What is the hope that we have? And in uh, 1 Peter, Peter hits on this several times, and I want to jump there now. So leave your finger here uh, in Romans 5, and let's go over to um, 1 Peter 1, uh, and we're going to hit verse 3 first, and then we'll hit verse 13. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never, spare, uh, 
never perish, spoil or fade. Then let's jump over to verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And flip the page, and we're going to see what Peter has to say about hope continuing on. Verse 21. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. One of the things that, that we as Christians have the hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? No matter what you deal with, no matter what life brings, you always have the hope of knowing the fact that no matter what happens, what's the worst case scenario that could possibly happen? You died. What happens then? You're united with God. So you have that hope. What can life throw you that doesn't end good? It doesn't matter what tribulations you face, you always have that hope. And that's the point that Paul's getting at uh, here in Romans 5. So verse 3 uh, I want to expound on this. So not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. One of the things uh, that I see very common today, people don't like pain. They think that... Um, Pain is not something that you should experience. And suffering is not something that you should experience. I don't know about you, but this is just my perception of it. And I have to admit that I was guilty of that as well. Is, is that anything that causes you pain is bad and that you should avoid it. But is that really true? And for me personally, one of the experiences that I've gone through in my life that taught me that that's not always the case um, was training for an Ironman. I've done several now, and the thing about doing an Ironman, and I'm, I'm not boasting, what I'm talking about is what you learn in doing something like that is you realize that it is only through being okay with pain and suffering that you will be able to grow and endure and be able to actually complete a full Ironman distance of a triathlon. To, to complete that, that full distance. The only way that you can do that is you have to train like crazy. And in that training, you need to get used to the fact that, okay, every day when I go out and train, it's going to hurt. But that's okay. Because that pain leads to perseverance. And that perseverance leads to hope. Now, I'm not trying to belittle what Paul's saying here. Because what Paul's talking about is persecution uh, for your faith. And there are people in the world right now that are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. There are people today, even now, today, that are dying for their faith in Christ. And I'm not trying to say that I understand what it's like to truly be persecuted for your faith. But there is a similarity. And the similarity is this, is that if you suffer for your faith, you will grow stronger in that faith and in your reliance on God, which will lead to you persevering more. You will be able to handle more. You'll be able to take on bigger challenges because you've gone through other things in the past. 
And that then leads to hope. And that's the point that Paul's making here. I love this verse. We also glory in our sufferings. He's talking about his, his personal sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And verse 8, I'm skipping ahead, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're called as Christians to help the helpless and to help those that need it. Well, here's a question for you. How much easier is it to help somebody who is in your circle, who you like, your children, your parents, your siblings, your best friends? When one of those individuals that is truly close to you needs you, that's the easiest time to, to, to stand up and to, to help out, right? Well, what if it's your enemy? And the point that Paul's making here is, is that Christ didn't die for us in the process of us being good Christians. It was while we were still sinners that he died for us. It's, it's something to wrap your heads around is, is that Christ didn't just die for those good Christians. He died for their murderers and the rapists and anybody who has ever lived. He died to forgive their sins as well. In the midst of whatever the sin is, that's when Christ died. Does that make sense? And that's what he's, he's making this point here is very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, let alone uh, uh, for a good person. But Christ died for us when we were completely uh, engulfed in our sin. This then transitions us to the second half where we look at original sin of Adam uh, and Jesus Christ being the second Adam. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this second half, uh, verse 12 through uh, 21. Take a sip of my coffee here. Oh, I even got my Iron Man mug. It's funny, in our house, this is just a little tangent. So, Celicia was the first person to do an Iron Man in our house. She did the Lake Placid Iron Man. And then my first full was uh, Florida. Um, <laughs> it's funny, is, is that, like a lot of people, we collect mugs. But I noticed a tension the first time that I ever made myself a cup of coffee in Celicia's Lake Placid Iron Man mug. It was funny, is, is that uh, I sat down and I'm sitting there having breakfast, take a sip, set the coffee down, and Celicia's eating there, blah, blah, blah. and then she looks, she sees that I'm using her mug. And you could tell she didn't want to say something, but I could tell something was up. I was like, what's up? And she's like, well, you're using my mug. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, I love the mug. It's a beautiful mug. And I'm, I'm training for an Iron Man now, too. And <laughs> uh, in her mind, you are only allowed to drink from an Iron Man mug, especially a full, if you've completed that Iron Man. And you are only allowed to buy an Iron Man mug if you have completed that Iron Man, that race. So as a result, you will never see me ever pick up Celicia's Lake Placid Iron Man mug um, and, and drink from it, lest the warning that she gives me is, is that if you break that, you have to buy me another one. And you're not allowed to buy me one unless you've completed the race. So that, I don't touch that mug. I'm sorry. Uh, that's just a funny 
Total tangent. Okay, so we're picking it up on verse uh, 12. Sorry for all the tangents, but um, it's what pops into my head and I just run with it. So follow along with me. Uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That's Jesus. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned for the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, so there's this juxtaposition, this uh, back and forth that Paul keeps making of this one man's sin uh, to one man's righteous act. Now, who are we talking about? Obviously, we're talking about the one man, Adam, the one act, the fall, and we're talking about the one man, Jesus, the one righteous act that he did, which is the crucifixion on the cross, and the resulting trespass, right? Being forgiven. Through Adam, we all experience death. We all experience the result of his one sin. His one trespass led to one sin, death, but now we all deal with the consequence of that, right? But Paul also says that the guilt of the one man is not just on Adam, for we all have sinned. We all are just as guilty as Adam. We all have trespassed. But the righteous act of the one man and his obedience, his obedience, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the night before the crucifixion, he's uh, in tears praying to God, Abba, Father, Please take this cup from me. If there's some other way that this can happen, please, God, let it happen that way. But not my will, but your will. 
Christ was obedient to the task he, was, he came down to earth to do. That's the obedience that Paul talks about here. So then that one righteous act resulted in salvation for everyone. And I love that comparison. I love, love, love that comparison. That's why I love uh, uh, chapter 5 so much is it's so powerful to compare the atoms. Right? So now we're going to do that in just a little bit. But to, to do it proper, what I want to do is go back to Genesis. Last week, it wasn't last week, but uh, last week, so to speak, when we went through four, we went back and looked at Abraham. Right? Now we're going to go back and look at Adam. So why don't you flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, and let's go to Genesis 1. Okay. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals and over all the creatures that move around on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, one tangent that I want to make real quick. Oh, the cat's back. We'll see if she jumps up. Yep, here she goes. Hi, Lily. <laughs> okay, so one thing that I want to note. Uh, it was probably about a year ago now, I did a video on translations, right? On all the different translations and why there's so many different translations. And I also talked about the uh, um, formal equivalence, uh, which is also the word for word translation. I also talked about dynamic equivalence, which is the thought for thought, and, and how when they translate these Bibles um, and the different versions that we have, why do we have so many different translations, right? Um, in fact, if you haven't watched that video and you're curious about this, at the end of this, I will put that video in the bottom left-hand corner so you can see that. But one of the things that I mentioned in that video is this this pull that that has happened in translations to try to make the Bible gender neutral, and this is a huge issue, big controversy um, that exists. And I mentioned at that time that my Bible I use an NIV. Cat, I love you, but you have to get off the table. I use the NIV, right? And I mentioned the fact that the 2011 NIV, one of the critiques that some people have placed on it is, is that it went back and changed a lot of things in the text to make them more gender appropriate. And I said then that I haven't run across a single thing that um, seemed inappropriate. Well, this is an example of one of those situations where I think this is appropriate. If you have a King James Bible, a Christian Standard Bible, an English Standard Version, or a Revised Standard Version, your text actually says man. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. If you have uh, a New Revised Standard Version, New Living Translation, um, New American Standard Bible, the Message, the Christian uh, uh, English Bible, or the NIV, 2008 or later, I believe, then yours says mankind. And I think this is appropriate. I think this is an appropriate change because the Bible, Moses, who wrote this, is talking about God said, let us make mankind, all people groups, all humans, 
Let's make mankind in our image. But then when you see he said, let us make them male and female, that's appropriate. This idea of taking and making God neither male or female, that I think is taking it too far. Why do I believe that? Because God specifically calls himself Father. The words to see him as Abba, Father, as our Father in heaven. That's very clear. And so I think it's appropriate for us to, when God calls himself male, we should follow that. But when the text clearly is saying mankind in general, then I think it's appropriate in that situation uh, to see the text as being humans or mankind. Wow, tangent. Okay, so now we're con continuing on. Um, so he's made man, mankind, in his image. Then, so picking up uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Obviously, that's an appropriate singular use of male, the man. This is man being created. Then uh, flip over to verse 15 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commended the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we fast forward. We're actually skipping over the, the rest of chapter two in which woman's created. Then we go to chapter three in the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. That's the fall. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole big talk on the fall. That's a separate study all of itself. Death that was entered in here was not only death and decay of the creation, which we are still dealing with now today in, in retro. It's continually getting worse and worse and worse and worse all the way from the garden till now. And it will continue to degrade. You also have death as far as us dying in our bodies and a lifespan that we have 120 years. Now at the time, I mean, Adam lived 900 plus years. Noah lived 900 plus years. But, but God did set an age limit at that point as well. And you see after the antediluvian age, after Noah, that it's 120 years. So death in that sense of we now have years to count. But there's also death in the sense of uh, separation from God, and that's the ultimate death. That is what God, Jesus, solves in the resurrection. In his dying for us, he pays that ultimate sacrifice 
to allow us to be reunited with God. And we also have here what's called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium is a, a fancy word for, um, it's the first gospel message in the Bible, and it's found in Genesis 3.15. Let me read that. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God speaking to Satan after the fall. And he says, Satan, I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now this is interesting is that we're plural right here. All of your offspring, Satan, all of your offspring, Satan, and all of her offspring, Eve's offspring. This is all of humanity against all the demons, basically. Put you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He, singular, now, will crush your head, singular, and you, singular, will strike his heel. That is a reference to Jesus. He is Christ will crush your head, you will strike his heel. The striking of his heel is what Jesus experienced uh, in the torture and the crucifixion. But crushing his head, the defeat of Satan, is what Jesus did on the cross. So, in looking at now comparing Adam, as we just described, to Jesus... One interesting thing that I found that I really got a kick out of uh, in the study that I did is a comparison using 1 John 2.16 to compare the temptations of both Adam and the temptations of Christ. So what I want to do is we're going to flip around here for a little bit. Um, so we're going to first go to 1 John 2.16. So flip over with me there. We'll eventually get back to Romans. But, but 1 John... 2 verse 16. And I'm actually going to pick it up on verse 15. So 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So there's three things that are listed there, right? You have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, compare the way Satan tempts both Adam and Eve, as well as Jesus. We see in Genesis 3.6. Now, flipping back there. So you don't need to keep your marker here on 1 John, but go back to Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So what were these temptations? They're exactly what are listed. The lust of the flesh, that is comparative to good food. Lust of the flesh, food. Second one, the lust of the eyes. Adam we see pleasing to the eye. The fruit was pleasing to the eye, lust to the eyes. And then pride, desirable for gaining wisdom. The fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now compare them to Jesus. Now let's go to Luke uh, chapter 4. Luke 4, 
verse 3 through 9. This is Jesus being tempted in the desert. Luke 4, verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus then responds, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up into their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we're comparing here, right? So 1 John 2.16 describes of the world, the temptations of the world, the lust of the flesh. Genesis 3.6, she saw the tree was good for food. Luke 4.3.9, the temptation that Jesus was given was command this stone to become bread. You see the temptation of the flesh is food and food, same temptation. The lust of the eyes uh, it was fruit was pleasant to the eyes for Eve and Adam in the first temptation. And then you have Jesus. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give you all of this. Everyone will bow down and worship you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Then the third one, the pride of life. Uh, Eve, Adam, a tree desirable to make one wise. The fall the thing that got Eve was wisdom. That was ultimately the thing. It was pride of trying to uh, be equal to God in knowledge was the temptation. And the temptation of Christ is throw yourself down from here. Show that you are God, that you are flesh, and that the angels will protect you. It's pride. Is that last comparison. And I love this, this comparison. The difference, Adam didn't succeed in the temptation. We as mankind, we fall to temptations every day. But Jesus, all three of those temptations, he stood strong against. And that's our example that we have. One other thing that I want to note is that when we flip back to Romans here, you can see that uh, when Paul says the one man, death, one man, Adam, one man, Jesus, one man, Adam, he keeps saying Adam. But wasn't it Eve who was tempted and took the bite? And she was the first one who brought sin into the world? But Paul here blames Adam. So who is it? Ah, oh, it's Adam. It's Adam's fault. I might be a little bit traditionalist here, and this might upset a few people, but the Bible talks about the fact that the husband is responsible for the family. For whatever the wife does, it now falls, responsibility falls on both of them. And as a result of this, the Bible makes it clear that it might have been Eve who took the first bite, but Adam was standing right there and let her do it. Adam should have stepped in, intervened, and been strong and said, no, we must hold strong. But he didn't. He was silent.
And then he ate himself. He ate the apple himself. What was the temptation that got Eve? Wisdom to be like God. What was the temptation that got Adam? A naked woman handing him food. We haven't changed all that much. So I, I, I love this comparison, flipping it back over to Romans now, of realizing that just as the one choice of one man and his failure led to sin for all mankind, Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Adam in perfection, found only through God intervening for us. The one temptation that they both faced, he withstood it. Christ was perfect. And so in that way is the perfect fulfillment of the law. But Jesus in the one righteous act provides salvation for all. In the same way that that one bad sin brought sin into the world for all mankind, even though we're all deserving of it, Jesus' one righteous act brought salvation for all. So that wraps it up for this week, Romans 5. The very end of this, I'm going to read uh, verse 20 because it's a perfect um, segue into chapter 6. Um, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The point is, as sin increases and gets greater and greater and greater, the salvation brought on, the grace brought on by Christ increases all the more to the extent that there is not a sin that we can commit that cannot be covered by God's grace. There's one that might be in there that's questionable, and that's where the one sin that Jesus referenced is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and the idea of that, to not go too far, but the idea of that is complete 100% rejection of God. Rejection of the works of the Holy Spirit, the works of salvation, specifically um, the works that, that the Holy Spirit does, not giving those as credit to the Holy Spirit and to basically throwing away the gift that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Uh, thumbing your nose at that is the one thing that is not forgivable. But I don't know how that works. Uh, I know that there are people who um, were saved, left their faith completely, and came back. That's a whole separate discussion. Can you lose your salvation? That's a whole other discussion that I don't even go down to. But verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. The argument here is, is that, well... Paul says that as sin increases, grace increases all the more. So let's sin it up. Let's go and live our life however we want to live. Because if you are a horrible person, then the salvation and the grace that is provided through Jesus Christ is all the more significant. Because you're so sinful, therefore the grace and the love of Christ is all the more powerful to overpower that sin. That is an argument that a person could make. And Paul starts out uh, chapter 6 by saying, no, by no means. And he'll go in and explain that even more. So why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this amazing message that Paul gives us in comparing um, Adam and the original sin that, that 
he fell short in that moment and that we are just deserving that that through Adam and that one sin, sin now entered the world, but but it wasn't just his one trespass. Each of us is guilty of that, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for you coming down in the flesh and through being obedient to the cross, the salvation was bought through one righteous act. We all now in our sin are now made right with you and that we can be united with you that through that one righteous act that you did on the cross, we now are unified with you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the hope that we have knowing that no matter what uh, trials we face, no matter what we're going through today, right now in this life, no matter what the trial, that we have that hope of knowing that when we die, we get to be united with you and that we can deal with whatever sin, whatever happens in this life because we have that hope. Thank you, Lord, for that. I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you guys very much. Next week, I am really hoping, next week, I am going to be back in the studio. Uh, Today is my last day on quarantine, and I just want, the cat, the cat, okay. I love this cat. This is Lily. She is very sweet. And she's my my sweetheart, and but uh, oh my gosh, okay, one thing is certain, she is getting thrown outside the next time I need to film uh, inside the house. I don't know how if you can catch all the cuts that I did in this video, but there are quite a few where I had to cut, throw the cat out the room, and she kept coming back. So uh, I love cats, I love Lily, but I will, the next time I need to film at home, cats getting tossed outside before I start filming. Next week, God willing, I'll be back in the studio and uh, I won't have to deal with this uh, wonderful cat. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.